and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Robert L. Tsai, Professor of Law at American University Washington College of Law, uh, and currently the Clifford Scott Green Visiting Professor of Law at Temple University Beasley School of Law. We will discuss his book, Practical Equality, which is published by W.W. Norton and Company. So welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me on your show, Brian. Yeah, so so I really I really enjoyed reading your book, which is so beautifully and cogently written. But for listeners who have not read it yet, I wonder if you could start by just talking about what you mean by practical equality. What is that? And, and how does the practical part modify the concept of equality? Sure. I'd, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about the ideas. Um, the way I use the term practical equality um, is uh, I, I mean it to refer to um, a kind of backup plan um, to our usual way of thinking about equality, which, which is typically in more ideal or idealistic terms, right? But, um, so philosophers often talk about equality in terms of uh, what basic equality demands. Um, and these are, are very sort of idealistic terms in terms of uh, thinking about uh, what uh, membership in a particular polity requires a particular community to give each member of that uh, particular community. Um, and so practical equality is, is a way to kind of break into uh, this conversation um, by exposing first that we run into a series of difficulties when we talk in purely idealistic terms. Um, to kind of show what those recurring obstacles are um, in the way we talk about uh, equality in this idealistic way. And then to suggest that um, what we really need to do is to kind of develop a backup plan. So once we recognize these recurring obstacles and we run into them, um, you know, how do we think uh, practically about solving uh equality-related problems in other ways. Um, uh, and that's what the book is about, is to sort of, A, talk about uh, what these problems are in the, in the ordinary way we talk about equality, and then show how um, kind of historically, when we've run into trouble on matters of equality, how we've uh, developed sort of workarounds uh, to those obstacles. Right, right. So I wonder if you could like give an example or two of circumstances where government or institutional actors have sort of implemented equality in the kind of practical way you're suggesting. In other words, how does this work in practice, <laughs> as it were? And sort of how would we think about or how would we identify, you know, why this approach is the kind of most effective approach? Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's start with an example uh, outside of the court system. Um, so on the question of slavery, of course, um, Americans engaged in a conversation that lasted generations uh, over the morality and legality of slavery. And for most people who opposed the institution of slavery, they saw it in these very important, powerful. Um, in idealistic terms, in, in, in terms of what equality d- demands um, uh, that we give each uh, each uh, each member in the society, right? And that's how most abolitionists talked about the problem. And and the difficulty was that um, this position ran into any number of obstacles. Um, a number of people worried, including liberals, for example, worried 
about the, the practical consequences of abolition, right? Um, what would we do with um, all of these former slaves? Um, would we have to give them exactly the same rights as everybody else? Um, uh, how would they be socially integrated? Um, this led, of course, uh, some people to come up with uh, expatriation plans, including um, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, first kind of um, believe that would be the, the best solution after some kind of emancipation. So the upshot is, is that this long conversation over the morality of uh, the equality issue here um, uh, kept running into a number of obstacles. And while it's very important to have this society-wide conversation, um, what we sometimes miss is that um, other people took more practical routes to try to uh, minimize or reduce the suffering that enslaved people actually were experiencing. So the example here would be that enslaved people um, uh, sometimes brought lawsuits themselves and they uh, repurposed um, uh, common law concepts like um, uh, self-defense, like um, uh, assault and battery, kidnapping, uh, as ways to try to sort of chip away at the institution of slavery. Now, none of these ways were the equivalent of arguing that slavery was um, a denial of equality, right? It, but they were different ways of sort of um, kind of talking about the problem, or at least parts of the problem, and different ways of trying to, um, as, I, as I sort of focus on in the book, reduce the actual suffering uh, that people are experiencing. And that's really the, the main um, emphasis here in the approach is that if there's more than one way of reducing that unequal burden, then um, what equality demands, I suggest, is that we, we talk about those other ways. Um, uh, because what pragmatism really um, kind of uh, helps us to uh, sort of sort out is that there could be more than one way to solve a problem. And if the outcomes are essentially um, similar, then we shouldn't fret about how we, how we characterize the problem. Right. Right. Well, I mean, maybe you could identify some circumstances sort of closer to us in time in which we've sort of, or institutions have used kind of practical, pragmatic approaches in ways that achieved positive or desirable results in a way that more kind of holistic or more idealistic approaches might not have been effective. Absolutely. So, so I, I kind of range very broadly uh, from older, out of sort of court uh, situations to a lot of cases in the judicial system. And what I try to stress throughout is that um, justice is a sort of collective idea. It's a collaborative enterprise, and it requires a certain amount of compromise without kind of losing sight of what's important about equality. Um, which is reducing these unequal burdens that we've been talking about. Now, um, some of the more recent examples that I try to cite where I sort of um, uh, uh, kind of endorse the, the outcome, um, maybe the most uh, uh, popular one or the, the, the one that most people will have uh, thought about is the travel ban litigation. And um, I actually start out the book by dropping readers right into that weekend um, where um, and there wasn't really even an announcement, but but um, people just sort of realized late Friday afternoon that um, something strange was happening. Right, that uh, the administration had um, quietly started to enforce this travel ban against um, 
uh, travels from um, a bunch of um, uh, Muslim majority countries. And um, my point of dropping the readers into that weekend uh, is to just remind people how chaotic that was. Um, there were people who made plans to have their, um, uh, you know, uh, sick babies come to the United States to get uh, care. And suddenly those plans were disrupted. There were people that had longstanding plans to come to the United States uh, and to work or to study uh, or to visit family. And suddenly uh, people were being pulled off the tarmac. And so um, this initial kind of entry to the travel ban uh, litigation is meant to sort of set up um, the reader to start thinking about these unequal burdens. Um, but what I really uh, try to defend is what happens earlier in the case. Um, uh, by now, everyone knows that the Supreme Court um, approved the third version of the travel ban, but a lot happened leading up to that. And uh, what I try to do in the book is to talk about how uh, the lower court judges, um, uh, when they confronted, especially the first version of the travel ban, most people uh, thought that the, the ban was really a denial of religious equality uh, because the president had for so long um, said um, uh, that Muslim people were, uh, as a group, more dangerous than other groups. Uh, and, um, and this uh, uh, ban really seemed to be infected with that um, religious animus. But what we immediately see in the litigation is, is that the judges have some trouble, um, and this is a three-judge panel in Ninth Circuit, one of the uh, more liberal uh, circuits, uh, have trouble rallying around that idea. Uh, and what they end up doing is they end up issuing a, 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 a unanimous decision on alternative grounds. Uh, this is the, the fairness grounds. They say that um, the ban violated due process because in a number of ways, um, it failed to give uh, travelers adequate notice of some pretty important changes to their, uh, to their expectations. And so that's an example of uh, what I call um, doing the work of equality uh, through other means. And I think that this is um, uh, kind of an excellent example of what you should try to do when you have trouble um, resolving a case according to kind of the traditional equality principle is, is I say that there's a duty to look for some other way to uh, reduce those burdens. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I really liked about your book was the way that you used examples of circumstances where the courts kind of failed to do this to explain how and why this sort of practical, pragmatic approach to equality is important. I wonder if you could kind of identify and talk about some of the, the failures and what they tell us about how we ought to think about uh, approaching this question. Sure. I, I, this is great. I, I do talk about a number of failures. Um, probably the, the, the biggest failure that I, I, I spend quite a bit of time in the book uh, talking about uh, is a case that will be pretty familiar to, to those who um, uh, teach criminal procedure or otherwise work in the kind of criminal justice area. And that's the case of um, McCluskey versus Kemp. Um, this is a death penalty case um, that is handed down uh, in, in the mid-80s. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a pretty devastating uh, case. Uh, what happens is that um, once the death penalty is sort of reinstituted, um, there's a, a, a fairly sophisticated uh, study that is conducted on 
um, all the sort of death eligible cases that are handled in the state of Georgia. Uh, and what the uh, study shows is a very disturbing pattern uh, of, of racial um, uh, discrimination. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of different ways of, of kind of understanding the, the, the data. Uh, one is, is that uh, uh, black defendants are significantly more likely uh, to get the death penalty. Um, the other way of understanding the data is, is that uh, somehow the system seems to value uh, white lives uh, more than black lives. And so that uh, consistently, if there's a white victim, um, then uh, the perpetrator is more likely to, um, to receive the death penalty. But in any event, um, either interpretation raises a, a serious concern uh, about inequality. Uh, in the criminal justice system, that, that some people are being put to death in, in, in this sort of unequal way. Well, this case ends up giving the Supreme Court of the United States huge fits, and um, it's decided on uh, very narrow grounds, 5-4, uh, against, the, against the challenge. And it's, the, the, the case is disturbing um, in a lot of ways, but I'll just focus uh, on the fact that um, when when I went back and looked at the sort of um, memos, writings that went back and forth between the justices, it's clear to me that, that Justice Powell, who at that time often was understood to represent the center of the court, someone whose who's vote, you, you know, a litigant really needed to try to pick up if they wanted to um, have a chance to win, um, got really uh, obsessed um, with the possibility that if the defendant won in this case, in other words, that if he prevailed on his equal protection claim, that it would bring the entire criminal justice down, right? He saw, in other words, he, he saw a slippery slope. He, he saw no way around the slippery slope. Uh, and uh, as a result, um, the, play, the, the, the defendant had to lose the case. But what's terrible about the case is also that uh, he doesn't just lose they issue a, a kind of decision that tries to insulate the entire criminal justice system, or at least all death penalty cases, from uh, future equality challenges of this sort. In other words, what they do is they end up manipulating um, the legal standards to say that unless you can identify a specific human being that um, is acting with um, malice, then there's not going to be anything that the courts are going to be able to do um, uh, about these kinds of racial disparities. And this is a kind of burden that is um, uh, pretty hard to meet if this sophisticated study isn't going to do, uh, do the trick. Now, why is this case a, a lost opportunity, though? Because that's how I talk about it in the book. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of offer, uh, you know, engage in kind of um, what ifs, but I do, I do pose the question, which is, that uh, you know, what, what if what if there was another way to kind of handle the issue? Um, could it have um, gotten Justice Powell to kind of soften his, uh, uh, you know, the whole world is going to end kind of attitude? Uh, and the alternative that I uh, propose isn't just out of the sky, but actually uh, something that's contained in the uh, defendant's own briefs. There was an argument, um, I think, there about fairness, that they didn't push perhaps as, as hard as they, they might have. Um, there was some evidence in the case that um, there were almost no standards uh, governing when a prosecutor 
uh, could seek the death penalty. Um, that was true in the in the jurisdiction where the defendant uh, came out of in the in the sort of Fulton County area. But there was also some suggestion in the case that uh, a lot of other counties either didn't have pro, uh, pr- procedures or, at a minimum, there was a kind of uh, huge range of of different ways in which prosecutors' offices handled death eligible cases. And uh, most people would say today that uh, prosecutorial discretion is is probably the number one factor in creating these kinds of disparities. Um, so this would have been another way of trying to trying to handle this case to try to reduce some of these um, inequities by by reframing the stakes in terms of fairness. Um, and I talk a lot about in the book how sometimes by recasting an equality um, issue. Uh, in terms of fairness, kind of like the the travel ban situation, um, you can you can sometimes get people to to sort of um, uh, soften their objections and and I wonder if that could have been done in this case because certainly the remedies would have been uh, been very different. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could like speculate or reflect a little on a recent dispute that struck me while I was reading your book, which was the sort of situation in the Master Peak cake shop case like did the court take a pragmatic approach there or could it have done better in your opinion in other words how should it approach kind of questions of that kind where equality and fairness seem to be really the kind of fundamental background question yeah that's a that's a really tough case and a great question um so the thing about practical equalities and approach is it's not going to give you a kind of um, automatic answer. It's more of an approach to help us sort of think through um, disputes that are presented to us that appear sort of facially as equality problems and to try to invite us to see if we can try to solve them in other ways once we run into difficulty. But it's not going to necessarily work in all cases. Um, the Masterpiece Kick Shop one is a tricky one because – um, you, you actually do have um, a whole bunch of different conflicting values, right? Um, it, it's often understood as a clash between equality on the one hand, that of um, uh, gay and lesbian uh, people, uh, and then religious believers' um, sort of free speech or right of conscience uh, claims on the other. But actually – I think it's more complicated than that. I, I actually think that there are equality claims on on both sides, right? Because if we're sort of fair to the religious um, objector here, that religious objector isn't just a solo actor. It's a, it's it's an individual who is part of a broader religious community, right? And it just so happens that the the First Amendment is the kind of strategic vehicle uh, for pressing the the claim that he or she has. But that individual is really representing kind of a community with a similar set of beliefs. And so to that extent, they see it not just as a, um, a conscience or speech issue, but also as a quality issue. So, so uh, that, that, that case is complicated. I mean, I, I think you're right that the outcome is a kind of a practical outcome, um, but it's it, – it, it was one that ended up being uh, unsatisfying for, I think, people on both sides, right? Because it ends up giving the um, the uh, the bake shop owner uh, only a kind of temporary reprieve um, based on the specific interaction that he had 
it, it didn't really lay down any broader principles, either in terms of equality or in terms of the speech uh, religion issues that were, were posed. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed that Kennedy uh, couldn't come up with a good framework or maybe couldn't come up with one, right, that convinced enough colleagues to kind of join him uh, in doing it. And so it's a kind of a practical outcome that's more like what I describe in the book as a deferral, um, where they just kind of find a way to punt, kind of kick the can down the road a little bit. Um, that's the way that that case sort of feels uh, to me. But I'll tell you why, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but but actually a more recent case where I do think reflects um, a, a practical uh, approach to a problem that really does have um, a kind of egalitarian effects uh, is the census case. I don't know if you kind of follow that. Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the, the census dispute um, is one where the, the challengers uh, to a decision by the administration, um, specifically the um, Secretary of Commerce's decision to add a question in, inquiring about uh, whether the respondent to the census uh, is a citizen of the United States, uh, was grounded in uh, egalitarian concerns, right? The 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 um, fear here was that if you asked people whether they were a citizen, um, and this became publicized, then you would get fewer responses among um, undocumented migrants, um, and you would also get uh, fewer responses uh, from um, Hispanic citizens of the United States. And um, and so this was the theory of the case that there were serious equality problems here, and that the administration um, added this question or wanted to add this question specifically to depress the the um, turnout or the responses from these particular communities. Now, why would they do that? Well, uh, as the theory continues, because the information that would be extracted from the census uh, would then be used for allocating uh, federal funds. Uh, and for determining representation, right, and that this would help the uh, the GOP in in sort of uh, you know its designs for um, to engage in partisan entrenchment. So this is a theory, right? Now, what's interesting is is that you know everyone who watched the uh, oral argument in in front of the Supreme Supreme Court uh, thought that the challengers had lost this case. They couldn't pick up Roberts' vote. Um, everybody else, you know, most others seemed hostile and that it, it was just a matter of how badly the challengers would lose. And then what we learn is like right at the end of the term, the Supreme Court issues this kind of shocking ruling where Roberts somehow gets peeled off from the, his usual colleagues on the right and joins the four liberals uh, in stopping the administration from adding the question. Um, what's the grounds that he uses, it's actually the rule of reason. What I talk about in the book is rule of reason. Um, but technically, um, it, it's, it's the use of the uh, Administ uh, Administrative Procedures Act, uh, which requires uh, that the government give reasons for certain agency actions, right? Um, but this is a statute that embodies a lot of what we know about um, these older principles um, that I collectively describe as the rule of reason. Things like a decision has to be a true decision, not a fake decision, that a government decision has to be rooted in empiricism, not sort of wild uh, speculation. Uh, and this is kind of a stunning 
um, decision. And I actually think it's a really great example and a really recent one uh, of the approach I talk about in the book. Now, we won't know for sure until sort of Justice Roberts either talks about the case or, you know, he opens up his own files for, for historians to look at. But I really do think that this is a, a, a pretty good example, at least looking at it from uh, outside, uh, of a situation where um, a lot of people felt like there were equality stakes here. There was no way they were going to be able to issue an equality decision. Part of that has to do with the procedural uh, posture of the case. The, uh, the broader equality questions were not taken up by the higher court. But that they felt these uh, concerns and they found this, uh, you know, they used the rule of reason as a way to kind of um, give us an egalitarian outcome by stopping the administration uh, from engaging in what many people thought was um, partisan entrenchment. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, I, I want to return to this idea of the rule of reason, but first, I wanted you to talk briefly about like hard cases, okay. right? Like, what do we do with like racists and fascists? And I mean, how do we think about people like that or odious ideas like that in relation to kind of pragmatic practical equality? Right. Those are those are those are really hard questions. Um, I, I I do write a bit about. Um, kind of grassroots um, mobilization on the right and the left. And in my writings about the uh, figures on the right, I do really try to stress how sort of organized, how frightening, how uh, illiberal, not everybody, but a number of, uh, of those folks really, uh, really are. Um, and, you know, I, I still think it's very important for us to confront um those kinds of problems head on. Um, the approach I stake out in the book is really a kind of a, of a backup um, uh, argument that, uh, you know, there will be moments where uh, other kinds of arguments, other kinds of approaches will be uh, good substitutes, what I call, uh, it will allow us to engage in principled substitution of one idea for, for another. But there'll be other instances where it won't be a good substitute, right? Um uh, so sometimes um, we really do need uh, the the powerful uh, rhetoric of equality uh, uh, to meet the uh, the racist challenge head on. Now in politics, I think we have we're much freer to to do that, right? Um, we're we're much more uh, able to say, hey, what you're saying is ethno nationalist, it's xenophobic. Uh, it's racist. I think that conversation is very important. Those conversations need to go on. Um, we also have to recognize that there are people, including people in positions of authority like judges, who um, will have concerns about that form of discourse. Um, uh, they worry about being branded as a racist or as a fascist kind of willy-nilly. Uh, they worry about the downstream consequences of such a finding, right? That you know, what do you what do you do, for example, if you say that um, the president's signature issue is racist and xenophobic? Um, you know, most right, right. I mean, most of us think that um, a lot of the things that he does is racist and xenophobic, but 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 lawyers and judges have to think about well, what are the legal consequences of that finding? Um, does it does it would it mean that 
Um, everything else that he does afterward in that in a given area uh, is all tainted, right? Um, and um, and I think that these are the kinds of practical legal uh, consequences that, that that other people who are more constrained in these matters uh, start to worry about. Um, so I'm all for um, having wide open, rollicking conversations about fascism and racism. Uh, we've got to be able to do that. Uh, but we've also got to be able to recognize that sometimes um, the way we have those conversations can actually become impediments to rendering justice. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's let's let I me mean, let's return to your conversation about the rule of reason because I found that a really fascinating and sort of, I mean, subtly. Um, I, potentially controversial <laughs> part of part of your book. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how equality and especially kind of pragmatic equality informs our concept or is informed by our concept of the rule of reason and what that would mean in in practice and whether a kind of more robust expectation of reasonableness on the part of the government might potentially anyway change the way we think about a lot of legal standards. I mean, like, I I couldn't help but ask myself, like, what does this do for like the rational basis test, for example? Right. So uh, I I think this is great. Um, The argument basically in the book is that um, sometimes um, reasonableness can work as a pretty good substitute for equality, if our focus is in reducing unequal burdens, that's not going to work in all cases. But I talk about a number of situations where, uh, like the census case, um, like a case involving um, uh, uh, mentally uh, disabled um, uh, individuals who challenged an ordinance that said, uh, for example, that uh, they couldn't live together in uh, in in a particular area of town, um, that that sometimes it can do some of the work of equality in this, in this other way. Um, what I start though is, is a, I, I start out by showing that reasonableness actually is something that runs throughout our constitutional tradition, right? When we, if we pick up the constitution, uh, our, our pocket version of the constitution, we'll see, right. That it shows up um, uh, in a number of places and most notably in the fourth amendment um, uh, where we say that uh, we have the protection against search and seizure um, based on uh, on reasonableness uh, grounds, right? That, that the police officers can't uh, put their hands on us uh, or inside our things unless they've got a a reasonable justification for doing so. So that's where I start. Is that as I say that reasonableness runs through um, in our entire constitutional tradition, including what you described, which is that um, every governmental action has to be minimally uh, reasonable. Um, now, uh, sometimes what we see is is that um, the focus on reasonableness, in terms of its emphasis on empiricism, on its demand that we give genuine um, grounds for taking action as opposed to false ones, can actually do some similar work that it, the principle of equality does. Um, we talked a little bit about this already in the census um, case, but I also talk about other situations where that's where that's true. Now, um, I suppose it's controversial in the sense that um, you know a lot of people have different views about what's 
what's reasonable. And I, and I, and I, and I get that. I think that's right. Um, and on top of that, what's reasonable has changed uh, over the years, right? That what we find today to be unreasonable, uh, people in an earlier generation probably generally thought was perfectly fine. I think that's just part of the animal that we, we have to deal with, right? Um, and yet we never give up this idea that there's something very basic about reasonableness and about the work that it can do. Um, uh, we've never, we've never said, nope, this is something that we're going to, uh, kind of, uh, kind of throw out. So I try to, I try to take, take I try to extract from this tradition. Um, it's kind of egalitarian promise, if you will. Mm-hmm. So Robert, in, in closing, I wonder if you could like reflect on things that maybe you were thinking about while writing the book that you weren't necessarily able to include, or maybe that are kind of baked in without being explicitly discussed or addressed in the book itself. In other words, sort of like to, to the extent you sort of have a kind of galaxy brain outside the book, like way of thinking about the questions, are there things you'd want to add for, for listeners who are going to be reading the book and maybe things they could, they could think about while they're reading it? Um, yes. There, there are two things I sort of, um, I wasn't able to, I think, grapple sufficiently, um, within the book. Um, and I'll just briefly mention them both. The, the, the first is the sort of broader um, kind of intellectual tradition. So, if, you know, for your listeners who love intellectual history, um, you know, I originally had much more in here about the, uh, the tradition of, um, of pragmatism. This, this is really, you know, America's uh, major contribution to philosophy is – the, the notion of, of pragmatism um, and pragmatism in, in the United States has taken a lot of different twists and turns. And, and, and in a lot of ways um, uh, it's gotten a little bit of a bum rap with, with how a number of legal theorists have, uh, have used pragmatism. And, and I'm here, I'm, you know, gently, um, uh, you know, pushing back on, uh, Sunstein and Posner and everyone else and um, these giants that have really taken pragmatism in a very hard law and economics direction and and we've we've gained a lot from from their work and those insights but um, y- you know it's funny because I would have never thought of myself as a pragmatist um, until I started doing the work associated with this book and kind of immersing myself in those readings and um, I guess what I tried to bring into the book, but which I'm, I wasn't able to sort of explore um, kind of thoroughly is the sort of humanistic aspect of that broader tradition, right? William James and um, the John Dewey's and, 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 and um, you know, even the, you know, Holmes who focused on um, how the, the life of the law has not been about logic, but about experience and, um, Cardozo's, you know, openness to history and sociology. I mean, so so there's this broader um, openness to ideas, the sort of uh, a demand that judges live among the people um, whose disputes, right, that they're trying to resolve. All of this I wanted to sort of bring in, um, um, but but didn't really have a chance to sort of um, say why it's so important to have that vision of judging. Um, as an alternative to sort of the the, the judge as a kind of 
um, technocrat, uh, if you will. Uh, so that's one thing that, um, you know, uh, I'd love to take this in, in that direction. You know, the other thing that I, that I think I, I, I wasn't able to, to fully do, although you get a little bits of it here and there, is, um, you know, to kind of put the ideas in the context of the possibility of a democracy in decline, right? Um, that, um, you know, there's a way in which a lot of people have been really thinking hard about uh, where our constitutional order is right now, why it is that we're so susceptible to uh, popular movements kind of from the far right as well as the far left. Um, and, um, you know, how these ideas either would work or wouldn't work uh, in in light of the kind of broader democratic condition in which we find ourselves. So those are the two kind of uh, directions that that my own my own work is kind of trying to push um, uh, these ideas toward. And uh, uh, I love talking to you about it today. And uh, I hope to hear from some of your listeners uh, down the road about these. Ah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Robert, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a delight to talk to you about your excellent book. And I'm really so glad I went to the panel about it at Law and Society, which is where where I learned about it. So thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for coming and thanks for having me on your show. The most powerful man in the world is also mortal. We know this all too well in America. One in five American vice presidents has had to rise to the duties of commander-in-chief. One in five has had to take on the responsibilities of the most powerful office in the world. For this job, after five months of reflection, George Bush made his personal choice, J. Danforth Quayle. Hopefully, we will never know how great a lapse of judgment that really was.